welcome you guys. So good to be with you all again. Man, we're back. After a couple weeks, I missed you all. Give your neighbor a high five. Say, I missed you. Say, you're looking good tonight. Say, this is going to be fun. Mm. I would give our participation level a, uh, a 50%, unless you're Keegan, and he, he went above and beyond. So, well, well done, Keegan. Man, it's so good to be with you guys tonight. I hope you enjoyed your couple weeks off. I hope you're enjoying your summer. Uh, man, I just went on a vacation to Michigan to be with my, uh, some family out there. And you guys, I think the sign of a good vacation is if you gain about a pound a day throughout it. So I hit that mark. So well done. Coming back, we're just fasting. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's so good to be with you guys again, y'all. We are going to be continuing on in our No Greater Love series for the rest of the summer. And tonight, um, we're talking about romance. So this is the point that you have either been eagerly anticipating or just like dreading. This is the moment where like you're sitting in the seat and you're like, I'm not going to make eye contact with anybody else this entire service. This is where like you kind of like brush the person sitting next to you and you're like, mm, and you both just like awkwardly sit and scooch over. Don't sit by anybody this would be uncomfortable with. But y'all, I am so excited. And, um, and honestly, I really believe that the Lord has uh, a word for us tonight in this area of romance, sexuality, marriage, um, because this is something that it's obviously out in the culture. This is something that is being um, communicated, something that is being, uh, messages are being pushed, and this is something that the church and Jesus uh, has a lot to say about. So I am eager for this. Um, kind of funny story to start. When I was 20 years old, I just started following Jesus, and you guys, I was like, dead set on like, I, when I was in high school, I'd had like some, some like texting flings, friend relationships, like never defining the relationship. It was just, I was, I was kind of a flirt. And then I, then I met Jesus and I was like, Jesus is it. Like almost like Jesus is my boyfriend vibes, but not quite that bad. All right. But it was this thing where I was like, I'm only about Jesus. And I was sitting with my brother and I said, you know what, I'm gonna make a bet with you. I bet you right now that if I get married before I'm 28, then I owe you a steak dinner. And he was like, I'll take that bet. And I was married a year and a half later. So you either really need to listen to me or you don't need to listen to me at all on this. So we'll see at the end. Anyways, our word tonight, right, we've been using these four or handful of different Greek words, one word in Hebrew to talk about love. We talked about agape. We talked about hesed. We talked about phileo, different categories of love. And tonight the word that we're going to be using to lock in on this is the term Eros. This is where we get uh, the words like erotic. This is, this is sexual love. This is romantic love. And when we use this word, the Greek, so these are all ancient Greek words. Um, the, the, the way that the ancient Greeks use this word is fascinating. Um, in the ancient Greek, so it was used to, to talk about erotic love, but it was also, Eros was a, the name of one of their gods. Eros was a god whose father was literally chaos, whose main job was to go out into the world, and he, was, he, and he made people full of sexual passion and desire, so much so that they became slaves to their sexual urges. I was reading this and some of this description, and I thought, how fitting a description for the world and the culture that we live in. Making us slaves to our sexual urges and to our sexual desires. We live in a sex-obsessed world, but the kingdom of God sees things differently. 
Now, for some of you tonight, right, even me just talking about sex and sexuality, um, some of you are here and you're saying, well, the Bible is just like, it's all about no, right? It's just, just what you don't do and you're just not supposed to do these different things. And just burr, 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 burr. Um, the Bible recognizes the complexity and the nuance of this issue. It's not a prudish book. There's an entire book of the Bible that's literally love poetry. If you read it, it's pretty like, it's like steamy love poetry, Song of Solomon. There's an entire book of the Bible, the book of Esther, where God uses this woman to save his people, but she only got into the position that she was in, truthfully, because she was able to sexually please the king of the world at that time. So what I'm communicating is that the Bible understands and has a lot to say about the sexually nuanced, complex, complicated world that we live in. And it offers us a better way through and a better way forward where we're not slaves to our desires, but our desires are actually harnessed and submitted for the good of, uh, the, good of the world and for the honor of God. Eros, let me give you a definition we're working with here. Eros is a longing for another, for the beloved, right? For an object and a person of your affection in their totality. Not just for one part of them or for a set of their body parts. It's not only sexual. It's a longing that consummates in a shameless, one flesh union that we call covenant marriage. A shameless, one flesh union called covenant marriage. Now, immediately when I use that term marriage, um, I would bet that there are about five to nine different definitions of what that means in this room. Um, I went to TCA around the corner. We took a rhetoric class when I was a senior. And they said, like, when you're debating someone, you always need to figure out what your terms mean, right? Are we using the same kind of language? Because when I say marriage, you might be thinking of something completely different. And our culture uses marriage one way, and the church uses marriage in a totally different way. My goal for tonight, what we're doing, we want to come and ask what is the biblical scriptural definition of marriage? What does this mean? What, is, what does the Bible mean um, when it says the word marriage? I want to give us three steps that I believe the Lord wants to take us on tonight. My goal for you is to cast vision for what marriage is. Now, vision is sight. Vision is letting us know where we're going. Because vision, it leads to repentance, and repentance produces fruitfulness. Because here's what I believe about you and about us and about this generation, is that God wants to move powerfully and mightily through us and through you. And one of the main tactics of the enemy to steal what God wants to do for you and for your life and for our generation is through the open door of sexuality. And so tonight I want us to have vision which leads to repentance, which produces fruitfulness. We need a compelling vision for what marriage is. So this is all groundwork, but we're going to let the word of God guide our conversation in this tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, jump to Genesis chapter 2 for me. All the way in the beginning, um, this is kind of like a second creation account. Um, God has just crafted and created the world, right? Things of beauty are coming out all over the place, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read our passage tonight. We're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in for some vision on marriage. Follow along with me. If you have it, it will also be up here on the screen. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. If you're underlining, underline helper and comparable. A helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. 
and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, underline one flesh for me. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed, underline not ashamed for me. Let's pray. Yeah, King Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to speak to us and to teach us. Jesus, I confess tonight that we have one Lord and one teacher and one Father who is the Christ. And so, Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Lord, we need to learn from you. Lord, we confess that we do not know the best way to go and that we need our lives to be harnessed underneath uh, the good and the kind rule of God. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. And even as we're talking here about this issue, about these different dynamics, oh, God, I just feel, man, I feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of this moment. And, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, uh, you would take my words and you would speak through me. I pray that you would minister to each of us tonight, Lord. I pray that we would hear from God and not just from man. Lord, that we would hear what you are speaking to us. Open up our ears to hear you. We love you and we need you. And all of New Life Young Adults said, amen and amen. Tonight, I want to give us three different um, handholds, ideas for what marriage is. Now, a couple weeks ago, we used the term covenant when we were talking about hesed. If you were here, awesome. If not, I'm going to give us just a quick refresher because we're using the word covenant a lot. A covenant is a promise. But it's a kind of binding promise that when you make it is intended to last until the moment they put you in the ground. A covenant is something that you enter into and you don't have any intentions of entering or walking out of. A covenant is like a super promise. It's like when you're in sixth grade, you did pinky promises, right? And like they broke your pinky if you broke it or something like that. Like this, it's like a super pinky promise. Kind of, it's, like, it's a big deal. So marriage is a covenant. I want to give us three terms for what marriage is. Marriage first and foremost is a covenant of unity. A covenant of unity. Genesis 2, 18, it says, And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper comparable to him. Even just like, this is not even what we're talking about, but I think this is so interesting. Right? God has just finished creating all of the world. And he makes like, like fish and the oceans and the mountains. And he's like, that's good and that's good and that's good. And it's this like cacophony of beautiful goodness just overflowing from the joyful heart of God. And then before sin even enters the world, we hit this moment. He says, but it's not good that man should be alone. This should strike you as interesting. That even before sin entered the world, it wasn't good that man should be alone. Y'all, that is why we're doing this No Greater Love series. is because God crafted us to be in relationships with one another. Anyways, that's for free. Moving on. 
It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. We're going to look at two terms here that are going to be helpful for even what marriage is. This first term is helper, and this second term is comparable. We're going to talk about these here for a sec. Now, when I say the word helper, so in this context, right, Adam has been entrusted with the garden. He's been entrusted with naming the creatures, with, with ruling God's world. And then God says, let's make Eve and craft a woman and a wife to be a helper to him. Now, when I say this, some of you are like, time out. Like, helper seems like less than, right? I think of like Robin to Batman when I think of helper. Or I think of like, like a second class kind of citizen or something like that. That's not what this is saying at all. This word in Hebrew is the word Azer or Ezer. And this is word used about 10 or 11 times throughout the Old Testament. And almost every other time that it's used, it's used to talk about God being a helper. And in almost every instance, this is so awesome, it's talking about God coming through like a mighty military deliverer to redeem and to save his people. Azer is a military term. Right? And Azer is someone like, if you're watching a war movie and someone is like pinned down and everything is going wrong and all of a sudden, right, like reinforcements come in. This is like, are there any Marvel fans? Like Avengers, Endgame, right? They're about to lose, then these big things open up and everyone comes in, right? Hooray. That is what we're talking about. And Azer is someone who is a military reinforcement. Someone without whom no primary task could be accomplished. God crafted a helper because without Eve, Adam could not fulfill his primary function of ruling the world that God created. When I was younger, I, um, I climbed a lot. Are there any climbers in the room? A couple of you guys. Awesome. So when you climb, there's a few different ways that you can do it. So one of the ways is you, you boulder, which is where you climb, but you don't have a rope. And so you just like climb kind of close to the ground. Um, there's one kind of climbing where you have like a top rope and so you're tied into a rope and it goes to the top and then it goes to the bottom and a guy belays you and you just go up the wall. But then there's this third kind of climbing that's really interesting and it's called mountaineering. This is what people do when they're like summoning Mount Everest or something like that. And what it is is that you're tied into a rope and then that rope, a little farther along, someone else is tied into the rope and a little farther along, someone else is tied into that rope. And I remember the very first time that I was doing this, um, just having like a moment where I was like, time out. You want me to go up there, only tied to those people? Like, what if we all fall at the same time? <laughs> What's going to happen? We're going to die. But what happens is when you climb the wall as a team, you clip into these different safety moments, and when someone falls, the support of the other people on their rope actually catch them and then help them back onto the wall. This is the picture of an azer in Scripture. It's the picture of someone that you're tied to, you're connected with, a partner who is equal to you that you can come and support and love one another. Christian marriage is built upon two equal, not identical, but equal partners who support, encourage, and champion one another. And even this, I want to just clarify this, this is built upon mutuality. Now in this context, right, Eve was crafted as a helper to Adam. But if you look at the rest of the biblical narrative, the invitation for marriages and the invitation for even human relationships is this idea of mutual submission. You read Ephesians 5, and Paul is writing, and he says, talking about husbands and wives, says, you therefore submit yourselves to one another. So this isn't something where you're the husband in the relationship and your wife just helps you do whatever you want to do. That's not what this is talking about. 
This is where you get to mutually go low and raise up one another to each other's calling and purpose in the world. That is what it means to be a helper. Marriage is a covenant of unity. Second word, comparable. This might be translated in different ways in different places. It's also translated as suitable. It's translated as, um, it's like this similar kind of different concept. I mean, if you look at the way it's used, it's really, really interesting. We don't have an English word that really captures it. It's this idea of something being same but different. Same, different. And you're like, you're like, well, what does that mean? How can something be the same but different at the same time? Um, what, what does that even look like? We really have examples for this, right? When I was little, I used to build a lot of puzzles, right? And if you have two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together, they're the same. They're the part of the same picture, but they're different and that they're unique. They're compatible. They're things that fit together to form a cohesive image and a cohesive whole. Now, what I'm going to say, this is, this is a clear definition that we're using here. God crafted men and women with unique differences to synergistically work together. I know even that statement, it goes against many of the cultural winds and trends that we live in to even say, right, that God crafted men specifically and God crafted women specifically. But when we're looking at Scripture as our highest authority, we have to take seriously the way that God and Scripture talks about marriage and talks about men and talks about women. And the image and the picture that God gives us is of a union of two partners who are equal but different. And are compatible. So we're talking about marriage being a covenant of unity. Marriage is a covenant of unity formed and fashioned between a man and a woman. This is what we see in scripture. This is the definition that God is giving us. And again, your feathers might be ruffled. Bear with me. Okay, I promise this is good news for us. Our sexuality in the kingdom of God is written into our bodies. It's not written into our emotions. It's not written into our sexual urges, right? In the kingdom of God, eros, sexual urges, are not our highest level of authority. We come underneath the authority and the power of God. And truthfully, friends, the enemy despises your sexuality. And he's crafted lies to come against your sexuality and lies to come against even this idea of marriage. Because most of us in the room aren't married. Are there any married people in the room? Yes, the few, the proud. I love it. I love it. Y'all, just like, I just want to celebrate marriage. You guys, marriage is awesome. Marriage is a gift. Um, but the enemy hates marriages. But for those of us who aren't in marriage right now, there are certain lies that the enemy wants to feed you that are going to be destructive to your life and to your marriages in the future. So I'm going to give us a couple of these lies, even as we're kind of working our way through this message. The first lie that I believe the enemy tries to get us to believe that comes against this idea of a covenant of unity is that my life is about me, what I want and what I feel. This produces two things in us. First, if we believe that any, or if we believe that my life is mostly about me, then any relational tension, discomfort, or sacrifice becomes antagonistic to our good. Let me say that in some different ways. If you believe this lie that your life is mostly about you, then you're only in relationships and you're dating with one another for what that relationship can do for you. You're thinking mostly about yourself and how that makes you feel and about you getting your needs met and you having, going and having fun or getting your sexual needs met. When in reality... The good stuff of marriage is actually in the tension. 
It's in the laying down. It's in this idea of being a helper and a helpmate for one another. Second thing that this lie produces is that no one can say no to you. You become your highest authority on your own good. You guys, sometimes I don't even know what's good for me. Like, how many of you guys can relate with this? Sometimes I wake up on a Saturday, and this was mostly before kids because babies keep you up. But um, I was like, I'm going to sit on the couch, and I'm going to watch Netflix for eight hours, and I'm just going to eat all the food I want. And I'm convinced that that is the best thing for me. And then I get to the end, I'm like, that was not the best thing for me. Holy moly, right? Talk about a pound a day. Jeez Louise. No one can say no to you. Here's my question for you. Do you think that you are the highest authority on your own good? Do you look at yourself and say, I know what's good for me in every single situation and in every single moment. And if that is you, then you are believing a lie. You can't bear that kind of pressure. If you walk into marriage and if you walk into a relationship and you say, I can define my relationship on any grounds, it's going to lead to your destruction, and it's going to hurt you. Friends, God is God, and you are not. You don't have the ability to define yourself or your own good. Remember, tonight is about vision, and it's about repentance, which leads to fruitfulness. The invitation here is to repent and to ask God what is good for you and what is good for us. First point. Marriage is a covenant of unity. Two, becoming one together. <clears throat> Moving on to our second point. Covenant, marriage is a covenant of intimacy. Intimacy. Now, we've been using this word a lot over the last handful of weeks. It's this idea of knowing and being known at the deepest level. In Genesis 2, 24, this is the moment where, um, this, is like a, this is a wedding moment in this chapter, where God brings Eve out like a bride, right, like a father leading a bride to her groom. And Adam sees her, and he explodes in this poetry, and he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother <clears throat> and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This terminology here, one flesh terminology, it speaks to intimate knowing at the deepest kind of level, right? This is talking about emotional intimacy. This is talking about sexual intimacy. This is talking about intimacy of two individuals coming together and being united in purpose and passions and in heart and in serving. You know, it's so interesting. So the, the Hebrew Bible, they use euphemisms a lot to talk about sexual things because they didn't want, like, like they didn't... Um, there are different thoughts on it. Some people say that they didn't want just like graphic stuff in their sacred texts. I was saying that and in the back of my head. I'm like, but Song of Solomons is pretty graphic. Anyways, um, the word that they use for, for sexual intimacy, it's this Hebrew word yada, which means, it literally means to know. In Genesis chapter 4, one chapter later, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and then she produced a son. In the kingdom of God, in marriage, Sexual intimacy is a, a, a really important component of this. It's not the only component, but it's an important one. And it's one, I even just want to take a second and talk about it. Um, yeah, I feel the weight of this conversation and the weight of this moment. Even as we're talking about sex and we're talking about sexual intimacy, um, I recognize looking at, even just like 
like statistics that have come out in the world, things that are happening in our culture right now, that most of us in this room have had some kind of sexual experience um, that has uh, hurt you. Most people in this room, right, if you look at, were exposed to pornography when they were young, right, whether it's through like a phone or a friend or whatever, right, most of us, we are a generation, friends, that most of us learned what sex was from pornography. Like, God help us. God help us. We're learning about this deep, intimate, important part of life, but we're learning it through the context of a lie that uses other people as objects. Most of us in this room learn that. I recognize even as we're talking about sex in this room, right, that there are those of us who probably experienced some kind of sexual abuse and sexual trauma. There might even be some of us in this room who are, who are perpetrators of sexual abuse and sexual trauma. The invitation for all of us is the same. The gospel of Jesus, the love of God for you in this moment. God wants to pull you in. He wants to heal you. And he wants to give you a new vision for what life can look like. And even what your sexuality and what your sexual life can look like. And so what I want to do, I just want to cast some vision. Just even talk about what sex and marriage is. Have you ever asked, right, we, we have all these ideas of like, man, sex shouldn't be this, right? It shouldn't be pornography. It shouldn't be abusive. Have you ever just stopped and said like, well, what should this be? Right, this is like this big crazy part of life that seems like it's causing a lot of people a lot of pain. Why is this even around? So what I want to do tonight is give you some vision. For even why, why did God craft the same? Because God made sex and he made it good and he made it a gift to his people. Sex and marriage is three different things, many, many more. But the first point is that sex and marriage is delight filled. Sex and marriage is full of joy. I've talked about Song of Solomon a lot. It's literally just eight chapters of a married couple like being intoxicated with one another. Like it's literally just like this joyful cacophony of marital love and intimacy. Proverbs 5.18 says this. It says, delight in the wife of your youth. Sex in marriage should be a joyful, delight-filled experience for you and your spouse someday. This is so interesting, you guys. There are all these studies that have come out um, by these secular organizations. And they've asked, they asked a lot of different people in a lot of different contexts just about their sex lives. And they said like, how many times do you have sexual intimacy? Um, is this something that, like, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfying is it? It's interesting. But um, at the end of those studies, do you know what they discovered? Is that by and large, almost like no competition, the people who have the most satisfying sexual lives are monogamous, married, heterosexual couples. Like, you guys, God crafted sexual intimacy to be a good, delight-filled gift for his people, and for his church. Sex in marriage is delight-filled. Second point, sex in marriage is clean. It's pure. Sex in marriage is unstained. Now, even as I'm saying these words, um, I think we've come so used to sexuality feeling um, dirty and shameful and like, like, we, like we do something, right, or like, we, like we, we sexually compromise or we do some kind of sexual activity. And then the next day we wake up and we're like, oh, I just need to like take a shower and clean myself off. That we can't even fathom the fact that it was actually designed to be something that did the exact opposite. Now, okay, I'm, I'm not like a huge water fan because growing up in the mountains, like there's not really water that's not incredibly frigid. 
but, but every now and again, right, like I'll, I'll go, I'll jump in, I'll jump in a lake. Um, Ellie and I lived in Tulsa for about five years. And when you're in Tulsa, it is like stupid hot in the summers, like 110. Like you literally, like I'm wearing a black t-shirt. I would walk outside and I would just be like drenched in sweat and it would be awful. But so we were in the summertime, we're trying to figure out, we're like, we need something to do, something to cool off. And we have friends who keep, you move to Oklahoma and they're like, well, have you been to the lakes? The lakes is what you need to do. You need to go to the lakes. And we're like, maybe we should go to the lakes. And so we took our friend's advice and we pack up in the car and we head out of the city and we're driving. And I learned, are there, are there any Okies in the room? <laughs> you might be offended by this, but I love you anyways. <clears throat> so we're driving and you get out of the city and I learned a very affectionate term. It's, it's called Hicklahoma. And Hicklahoma is real, my friends. You get out of the city and it's like, there's like tractors in the middle of the road and there's hay bales. And I'm like, what's going to happen to me out here? Oh, my goodness. You're learning a lot about me probably as I'm describing these things. But we go through and we drive to the lake and we get out and the, the lake is crowded and packed. And we get out of the, the car and I immediately am drenched wet before I'm even in the water. And we go up to the edge of the lake. <coughs> um, and something you need to know about Oklahoma water is that it's like when you think about water in a lake, you think about like, oh, I'm going to sit on the beach, or I'm going to go swimming. Oklahoma water is like, it's like watered down mud. It's like you walk to the edge and you dip your toes in like three inches and you can't see them anymore. And you're like, oh, good grief. What's going to happen to me if I get in there? And you can't see the bottom. And the other thing about Oklahoma water is it has snakes. Like not just like little garter snakes, like snakes that can literally kill you. And I'm here at the edge of the water, and I, like, step in, and I'm making eye contact with Ellie, and I'm like, is this okay? Then we, like, go in, and we, like, step in, and we're there for, like, five, ten minutes, and we get out, and it's just, like, I'm just covered in this, like, thick, like, grime. It's just, like, sticking to my body, and I'm like, I am never doing this again, ever, and I never did. Praise God. Thank you. And, okay, take that moment, okay, this filthy grime-coated lake, and I'm going to contrast it again. So, again, I'm not a water person, but I do like the mountains, and I was camping with my dad one day. We were up, we were deep in the mountains, we were right at treeline, and we set up our camp, and my dad and I are, like, borderline too competitive with each other. It's like we start playing games together, and I have this very distinct memory of one of us, it was probably me because I was a child, taking the board when, during a board game and just like flipping it in the air. So we, we like to do all kinds of little games. We're, so we're playing this game together, and there's this fresh, clean, clear mountain stream that I can literally watch the snow melting, and it's coming, and it's filling up this little like basin, and it rushes past us where we're camping. Um, and in our little game, we said, hey, the loser has to jump in that water. And this water is like barely above freezing, like 40s, 50s, cold. And so we go, we do the game, and I end up losing. And I'm like, all right, I got to do it. And I come to the edge, and I leap in, and I immerse myself in this crisp, clean, cold water. And it took my breath away. But as I got out, I found that I walked out of the water invigorated. My mind was clean and clear. I was, um, I was able to think, and I was like, wow, right? It's just like take a shot of coffee in the morning or something. It's just, it just wakes you up, and it invigorates you, and it gets you clean. I think these are really good pictures, I think, even for the way that, um, that sex can be viewed. We're so used to grimy Oklahoma lake kind of sexuality 
where you experience something and you have these deep sexual desires, right, because you were crafted that way and then you do something or you give more of yourself away than you desire and you get farther down this line and you just look at yourself and you're like, I just need a freaking shower. Like, God, help me. I just need to get out of this, right? But you can't get out of it. And we, we, we get so used to that that we, we don't even realize, you guys, God crafted sex to be the opposite. God, in marriage, in a marital, intimate, covenant marriage, sex is something that invigorates you, enlivens you. It actually brings you more into alignment with love for your spouse and love for God. Sex in marriage is clean. Hebrews is talking about marriage. And one of the things that he says in the book of Hebrews is keep the marriage bed pure because there's power in it, friends, to bring life and to bring freedom Marriage or sex in marriage is clean, it's pure, it's unstained. Lastly, sex in marriage is bonding. It's bonding. Um, this really interesting thing happens when you have sex or have like some kind of sexual experience is that in the moment of that sexual experience, your body releases incredible amounts of oxytocin. This is this chemical in your brain that literally binds you emotionally and mentally to whatever or whoever you're in that sexual experience with. Now in marriage, this is a beautiful thing. This is something where you get to be knit together in unity with your spouse. <clears throat> Sex becomes a physical, um, a physical expression of an emotional and spiritual reality, right? It becomes an expression of, man, like my wife and I, we're already intimate. Like, we already know everything that's going on. We have emotional intimacy. We have spiritual intimacy. And then our sexuality just begins to be an expression of that that just binds us even more closely together and knits us even more closely together. Where this gets twisted and off is when we have a generation that's been taught sexuality by pornography. And when most of us in our generation have between five and ten sexual partners by the time we're 18 and graduate high school. We get to this point where we can no longer bond well with anything or anyone. Now, this is bad news. Like, this is heavy. The really good news of this, you guys, is that God wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. And I want to expose a lie here, and then I want to give us a way forwards in this idea of sexuality. This lie, number two, is that I cannot control my sexual urges. And to do so would actually be untrue to myself. There's this lie in our culture that unless you act upon every sexual desire that you have, that you're not actually actualizing yourself. Y'all, this will kill you. It will kill you. It will make you a slave, not free. And God made you to be free. I want to share a story of a friend of mine. I asked his permission if I could share this. But um, there's a dear friend of mine in Tulsa. And um, I was a teacher in Tulsa. He, he taught with me. We were also close friends at our church community. Um, we'll call him Brian for this. So um, part of Brian's story is that he was raised in the church. So he um, was raised in a believing family. He decided he wanted to follow Jesus from a young age. Um, <clears throat> and as he was reaching like middle school, high school kind of age, um, Brian had this moment where he's seeing his friends and they're starting to like couple off and they're talking about like who they want to get like connected with and like who their crushes are. Um, and Brian has a moment where he's like, wow, I'm not feeling any of these kinds of emotions towards women. I'm actually feeling these towards my friends. <laughs> and so it started this process for him where a couple years later, um, he kind of came to the conclusion where he was like, I 
Like, I think I'm gay. Like, I'm, I'm, am I gay? I think I'm gay. And what he did in that moment is that instead of pulling back and saying, I'm feeling this desire, this is becoming part of my identity, he pressed into his community and he sat down with leaders in his church and he really just dug in. He's like, well, what, what does this actually mean for me? Right, if I'm experiencing some of these things, attraction towards someone of the same sex, what does that actually mean for, for me? And what he did is he dug in and he read passages like Genesis 2. He read passages where Jesus talks about God crafting humanity, male and female, and what God brings together, let no man separate. And he ended up coming to the conclusion that the only way, really, that, that the way to faithfully follow Jesus in his entirety, not just in one part of him, but in his whole life, his whole sexuality, was for him to take his sexual urges and his sexual desires and to lay them down at the foot of Jesus. So my, my friend is in his 40s now. He made a decision when he was in his early 20s that if God changed his desires, like, like awesome, but he was not going to let his sexuality and his desires define the way that he followed Jesus. He was not going to become a slave to his urges and to his appetites but he was going to take those things and to, uh, lay them down at the foot of Jesus. And here's the thing about my friend. So he has lived, he's lived a celibate lifestyle his whole life. He's, he's not had intimate, intimate sexual experiences in his entire life. Now, some of you were, <laughs> might hear that and be like, <gasps> like, is he like deprived? Like, is he <laughs> like, is, like, is he like a half human? You guys, Brian is one of the most interconnected deeply intimate friendships with other people, life-filled, overflowing with joy, people I've met in my entire life. He's one of my favorite human beings on the entire planet. You just like sit with this guy and you talk to him and you're like, you have been with the Lord. I tell you this story for a couple reasons. First is that I recognize that there are, there are many of us in this room who have experienced same-sex attraction. Let me first just say like, like, I'm so glad you're here. Like, the, the church is the place where we want to be. The church is the place where we can come with any kind of background, context, and history. And where we can come and bring our lives into connection with Jesus. But little side note. But primarily is because I think Brian's life is an example of what it looks like to live a life not as a slave to your sexual urges. Not as a slave to what you want in a moment Here's my question for you, and even just expressing, if there's any kind of like misclarity, the Bible's language about sexuality is always in the context of marriage. Scripturally speaking, you guys, the way we believe God crafted the earth is that in a covenant marriage, sexuality is a good gift and a blessing, but if you get if you practice sexual experiences outside of marriage, it gets really dangerous and it gets damaging. The word that scripture uses to talk about that is porneia. It's where we get pornography from. It's any kind of sex outside of marriage. So here's my question for you. What are you willing to do to be free of being a slave to your sexual urges? Remember, tonight is about vision that leads us to repentance that produces fruitfulness. What are you willing to do to be free? Jesus' words on this issue are um, heavy at times and in love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looks at his friends and he says, talking about sexual sin specifically, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to go into life maimed 
then with two eyes be thrown into hell. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, he's not actually saying to do this, but what he's saying is, what are you willing to do to be free? Are you willing to do what it takes to walk in freedom, not as a slave to sin, not as a slave to sexual urges, harnessing these things to the gift and the glory of God? Are you willing to join accountability? Are you willing to come together with another group of guys, another group of gals who know your story? You guys, we're going to be partnering as young adults with some of the, uh, our fire team ministry here at New Life to start offering some opportunities to walk in accountability relationships. We'll talk more about that as time goes on. Are you willing to set up boundaries with your significant other? If you're dating and you're finding yourself consistently crossing sexual lines, are you willing to set hard boundaries that say, we're not going to go this far? What are you willing to do to protect this? Are you willing to even separate and break up with a boyfriend or, if a, girl, or a girlfriend? If you're living together, are you willing to move out? Until you're willing to resist to the point of blood. Scripture says, even in the New Testament, it talks about you have not yet resisted to the point of blood. Until you're willing to resist to the point of blood, all, all out aggressive war, then sin owns you. It's your God and you're its slave. Is that Christ came so that you would be free? We're talking about the love of God, you guys. The love of God leads us into life. God loves us so powerfully and poignantly that He's not willing for us to stay somewhere that's killing us. I know this is intense. I know this is heavy, right? But we we need we need to see vision. Where is God inviting us into? And this is not to bring shame. You guys, no one gets through this life unstained by, by sexual sin. Like, whether things are done to you or you do things, we don't really get through this. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ went to a cross to bear the consequences of our sin, that he went into the grave bearing our sin with him, and that he rose up again in resurrection life, pouring the Holy Spirit out into you so that you could walk in freedom. This is God's best for you. Marital intimacy in a covenant is a covenant of intimacy. I want to give us a last point here. And even just, this is, this is the goal. This is the why, right? You're all, if you're questioning like, well, these feel like intense things we're talking about. Why? Let me tell you why. Because marital, uh, or covenant marriage is a covenant of safety. It's a covenant of safety. Safety comes when you combine the intimacy of marriage, right? What we just talked about, this intimacy of marriage, when we combine that with the commitment of marriage. When intimacy and commitment come together in a unified covenant for the rest of your life, that's when safety blossoms and blooms. Genesis 2.25 describes it this way. It says that, and the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And now naked, it's not just talking about like they've got good beach bodies and they're like, I can, I can strut it. That's not what it's talking about. It's that they were fully seen. They were known in all of their complexities and nuances and the things that they were good at and the things that they weren't good at. And, and they, they didn't have to hide anything. They didn't have to hide anything. To be naked and unashamed is to be fully known and to be truly loved. It's a covenant of safety. 
guys, I've experienced this time and time again, even in, even in Ellie and I's marriage. There were things that I went into marriage and into dating um, that like, like, like when you first get to know somebody, right, you don't just like lay all your chips on the table. You're not like, well, here's everything about me, right? You kind of get to know each other over time. And there were some things where you kind of like slowly get to know each other and you slowly get to know each other. And then like, some of you have probably experienced this. There's like that thing where you're like, oh boy, like we're going to have to talk about this at some point. And then like that moment and like you got a little bit of like shaky hands and then like you share it and it's like the moment of pause where you're like, this could be it, <laughs> right? Like this could be, this could be the, the whole deal. I found time and time again in Ellie and I's marriage is that when we come to one another with these parts of ourselves that we're terrified to share, because we exist in a unified covenant submitted underneath the authority of Jesus, where we know one another and love one another, it actually becomes, those things become um, fuel for our connection. Sharing those scary things, it actually strengthens and builds and adds to our marriage, to our connection, and to our covenant. I want to give us one last lie here, and then we're going to start moving towards the end. Here's a lie I think some of us are believing is that you or I will never be fully seen and loved. I think some of us in this room, because of these things that we've done and these things that have been done to us, come into a space like tonight, and whether it's with God or with a marriage relationship, we say, no one, people are never going to know all of me and actually love me. And I think that drives us a couple different ways. Right? I think that drives us sometimes to like keep all of our relationships really shallow or to like even try to um, even try to like use other people where we come into a kind of connection and we start like dating somebody and then like things get too like a little bit too serious and so we bounce to the next person, we bounce to the next person, we bounce to the next person. If that's you tonight and if your, your core question, the core lie is am I ever going to actually be loved? Am I ever actually going to be seen? Here's the invitation of Jesus for you. Stop trying to find your, your love needs in another person. Come to Jesus. Let him speak his love to you and over you and through you. Let him meet those needs. And then second, here's my invitation, is come and meet those needs in the context of community, not in the context of a romantic relationship. Until we come and we're a part of a group of people where we receive our love from God and we can give it to one another, you're never going to be in a space where you can be a good spouse. This is always an interesting thing, right? Like we, all, we always come into context and we're like, like who is the person I want to find as a wife? Or who's the person I want to find as a husband? I want to find a good wife and find a good husband. Have you ever slowed down to ask, am I, <laughs> like, am I good husband or good wife material? If this is you, slow down. Come and find your love from Jesus. As we're even closing tonight, you guys doing okay? Yeah, are we okay? I know, y'all, I think anytime we talk about sex and anytime we talk about marriage, um, y'all, it's, it's, like it's, it's like it's painful and it can be intense. But you guys, if we press into this as a community, if we press into this as a generation, I believe that God wants to both heal us but then also send us out. Which leads me to this kind of last idea I want to leave you with tonight. Why would I want to live this way? Why would I want to live in a way, right, that prioritizes covenant marriage? Like that seems like, <laughs> like covenant marriage, like only having sex with 
one person that you're married to for the rest of your life and like as, as you're dating or you're engaged, like not having sex, like that seems hard. So you're like, why would you even want to live this way? What's the incentive here? I wanna give you two ideas. First is for the life of your own soul. Our God isn't the kind of God who puts needless impositions on us. God doesn't come to you and lay heavy burdens on your back just because he likes to see you squirm, right? He's not over here being like, like, he really wants to go have sex. Like, no, right? That's not who God is. But what he does is that he invites us into a way of being that actually produces life inside of us. It's good for us. God wants to bless you. You guys, I think all of us in this room would come and say, I want the blessing of God on my life. Right? I want God's favor. I want his love. I want his, uh, the, the, the clean water right, of God's love and life to flow in me and to flow through me. When we live in habitual sin, when we're slaves to sin, that clogs that up. God can't bless sin. That doesn't mean he won't bless you and doesn't love you. What it does mean is that we can't live in unrepentant sin and expect the full blessing and power of God to flow through our lives. That's not how it works. God wants you to live well. This is for the life of your own soul. And then the second point, and this is where we're going to close, is we want to live this way for the blessing of the world. Uh, one chapter earlier, we've been in Genesis 2, one chapter earlier, um, God crafts Adam and Eve, and then he gives them this, this instruction. He says, then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. These are, this is calling kind of language. For those of us who are in the room who have been following Jesus, maybe have heard this idea of, of calling, purpose, right? You guys, we're in our 20-somethings. This is a time of our lives where we're like, what was I made to do, right? Why did God plant me on this earth? Who am I supposed to influence and, inv and invest in? How am I going to change the world by the time I, I leave this planet? That's the season we're in. Your sexuality is a gateway to your authority. And this is one of the reasons that the enemy comes so hard against us, you guys, is because he knows that if he can rob your sexuality, that if he can, ha if, if he can be the king of your eros, right, instead of God, that he's going to steal your authority to bring the kingdom of God on the earth. And here, you guys, at New Life Young Adults, my prayer for us is that in our city, right, we have these windows here, we're watching the mountains, we're watching the, the cars going by, is that we would be a people of God full of the power of the Holy Spirit who go out into our city and into our community and who minister the kingdom and the power and the presence of Jesus. This is what God is calling us into. And God wants us to live this way and be free. Your sexuality is a gateway to your authority. So tonight, remember, tonight is about vision. Where are we going? What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant of unity. It's a covenant of intimacy. It's a covenant of safety. This is what marriage is. It's a vision that leads us to repentance. Because oftentimes our lives might not fit with this. There's really good news. If you find yourself and you're like, wow, like I'm, I'm actually not, <laughs> my life and what I'm, way I'm living right now, like I would not be able to live marriage well in this moment. Is that it's the kindness of Jesus that leads us to repentance. This is the 
first chapter of Romans. He says it is the kindness of God that leads us to change, to a place of repentance. Because repentance leads to fruitfulness. Can you stand with me? As we're closing, I want to remind us of some of these, even these three lies, and just try to identify them, right? See if these are things that, that the enemy would come against you with. My life is about me, is this first lie. The second, I cannot control my sexual urges. And then last, I will never be fully seen and loved. If you find yourself believing any of these, then the invitation for you is repentance. It's to say, God, I have believed these. Forgive me and heal me. And if you're here in this space where you're like, I believe this, I'm walking in this, I'm, I'm living in purity, then ask God for fresh vision for your marriage. And just see what he says. Let's pray, let's worship, and we'll go from there. King Jesus, you are the God who created marriage. Lord, thank you for the good gift of what it is. Thank you for the gift, Lord, of covenantal union with another person. Lord, of the joys of sharing life's pains and pleasures, worries and celebrations with someone. God, I ask that you would speak to each of us. Lord, would you lead us in repentance? Would you give us a vision that leads to repentance that produces fruitfulness? We love you and we need you. Speak to us, Lord. In your name, King Jesus. Amen.